0: My job tonight is to open the Bible, and um, and I, I take that really seriously. Anytime I do that, I want Jesus to get bigger, cross to work better, the resurrection to be central, and scriptures to get bigger, not smaller. I hope that's your experience tonight and to whoever's watching us um, online. Um, I'd also, if you have less anxiety, if you know what's coming, um, which most people do, I'd like to say thanks for everybody coming out. It's Friday night. You came out. I, I, I really appreciate it. This was the only night I had. I'm speaking every day until November 13th, and this was... True, and this is this is what I had. So, so thank you so much, and particularly thanks to everybody over forty. If you came out tonight and you're over forty, I really appreciate it because, yeah, because we, yeah, well, people, we don't do things outside after seven. You serious? Like, like, I, I, I'm forty-seven. That removes some of that mystery, and uh, and and you don't do things outside after seven. Like, people often ask me, "Do you want to, do you want to go to a movie after this or something?" I'm like, "What time does it start?" They're like eight forty-five. I'm like, "What am I an animal? Are you serious?" Um, like, like, if you're here and you're over 40, um, I promise you this will be over by eight. Okay. Uh, and, 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 so everybody can, cause in a room this size, uh, it's impossible that there's not at least one of you protracting your bedtime. I get it. I get it. Cause I might be that one. All right. So, uh, so, so we're going to journey, we're going to journey together. Uh, first, let me tell you, let me tell you why I, uh, I, I brought this message tonight. Um, I was driving to Chinchilla, um, and i was going to speak out there for my friend lee dolman and he uh on the way there you know, you know in australia you're not allowed to touch your phone so i had the i had the podcasts just on random and, and there was a guy that came up he was a phd in social anthropology he was being interviewed by somebody whether he was religious or not i certainly i have no idea he certainly made no issue of it at all um he was just talking about the anthropological responses to pandemics Um, he went back through the last eight great pandemics in the history of the world. Um, smallpox pandemic of 251, uh, 336 AD, which was universally agreed upon as the worst year to ever be alive. Um, the reason is, is because a volcano erupted over Iceland before Iceland was, um, habitated and uh, no, no one knew, no, no one knew where it was. And the, the ash made the sky of Europe go dark for two years. Um, 336 AD was the Justinian plague. Then you had the bubonic plague, the Black Death. Uh, You know, then you had the Spanish flu. Of course, you have COVID. And, And here's the thing. He talked for an hour, and there was a lot of things he said that were profound. But here's what matters to us. He said, what you see at the end of every pandemic in the history of the world, every single one, he said, what you see after the pandemic starts to wane off is you see a three year rush back to people wanting to be regrounded in spirituality and faith. He said, you just see it. He said, it's, it's the result of several things. That's not really important for us. What's important for us is that if he's right, and I think he is, that means from June, 2023 to June, 2026, you should be seeing a once in a lifetime rush of people around us wanting to ask questions about faith, which means we have a once in a lifetime opportunity to restore the beauty of certain words that have lost their beauty. Words like Christian. The word Christian is not Beautiful. It's not, and it's not the woke's fault and it's not the left's fault, it's our fault. We're the ones with the plank in the eye and they have the speck. Jesus said, if you wanna change your world, you gotta see yourself as the bigger problem and them as the smaller problem. We have planks in our eye. That's why if someone asks me if I'm a Christian, I always say the same thing, I don't know. And then I just hold my face. And I'll wait for them. They'll say, what do you mean you don't know? That's a yes or no question. Are you a Christian? I'm like, I have no idea if I'm a Christian. I have no idea what you think a Christian is. So why don't you tell me what you think a Christian is, and then I'll tell you if I'm that. And then they'll do that. And eight out of 10 times what they think a Christian is, I'm definitely not that. And the reason is, is because Christians, the internet is great. I love it. Life with the internet is better than life without it, right? But the internet has given a microphone to everybody on the earth. And that ain't good. That ain't good. Like, don't do it because it would be rude to me while I'm talking. But if you open your phone, open your Facebook or Instagram feed, how many seconds would it take before you see a post a Christian made that would make you gag or make you very embarrassed? Right. Christians, hold on to something. Christians are not supposed to be known for their opinions about climate change. They're not. Please have whatever opinion you want about climate. Live by it. Put your conviction on a flag if you want. Just make it a little toothpick flag. Let the main flag be our belief in Jesus as evidenced by our love for our world. Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciple by your love, not by your opinion about climate. Christians aren't supposed to be known as experts in sex. And thank God, because we're not. Christians aren't supposed to be known for their political opinions. Christians aren't supposed to be, and please have them. Please have convictions around sex and sexuality. Live by them. Please do. Put them on a flag if you want. Just make it a little toothpick flag. Let the main flag be our belief in Jesus as evidenced by our love for our world. Christians aren't supposed to be known for their opinions about climate or sex or health or vaxes or politics. If you'd rather be known as a labor voter than a follower of Jesus, I think you've missed the point. If you'd rather be known as a liberal voter than a follower of Jesus, I think you've missed the point. If you think Jesus is a Republican, you've definitely missed the point. Like, it's, it's not, and we're certainly not supposed to be known for our amateur predictions of doom. Christians aren't supposed to be known for any of that. Christians are supposed to be known by their love for their world. Now, that doesn't really matter, because words don't matter. How people picture words working matters. There's a lot of people I'd rather not love me, because the way they think love works is a little bit jacked up, right? And, and so, like, words matter less than how you picture words working. Uh, So in other words, it's possible to say something true that creates not true imaginations about how it works. Let let me show you, I'm I'm gonna prove it. I'm gonna say something true, but it's gonna create a not true imagination. That way I'm not manipulating you. I'm telling you ahead of time, I'm gonna say something true. It'll definitely create a not true imagination. Here it is, ready? One day you'll stand in front of Jesus and he'll judge you. That's true. What's not true is the courtroom imagination. In Hebrew, see in our world, a judge is a court official. In Hebrew, a judge is a shofet. He's a defender. Psalm 84, God is the judge of the orphan. Why is God judging orphans? You guilty orphans. No, what's he doing? He's defending them. And there's a whole book in the Bible called the book of judges. These people aren't courtroom officials. They're people anointed by God to set you free. So when I say Jesus will judge you, I mean one day you'll finally be in the presence of the one fully anointed by God to set you free. And in that sense, I want you to be the most judgmental church in Toowoomba. I want you to be people willing to engage people's broken stories, not to hurt them, shame them, criticize them, or condemn them, but to involve yourself in the broken story in order to make a better narrative out of that story. That's what I mean. But the image that we have on judging is not that. Why? Because when I was seven, my Sunday school teacher told me one day I'd stand in front of Jesus, and he'd put my whole life on a giant screen for everybody to look at, which leads to all kinds of questions like, how boring can you make heaven? (laughs) My life's not that interesting now. You mean heaven is sitting around watching people's lives? That would be terrible. 13.7 billion people have lived and died with an average lifespan of 50 years. That means the first 650 billion years of eternity is watching people's lives. That would be horrible. Strap in, everybody. Next up, Methuselah, right? And how mentally unhinged do you have to be to say yes to a relationship to someone that tells you beforehand they're going to shame you in front of everybody? See, what you'll find if we actually take the time to listen to people who are anti-Christian is that they're anti some image of Christ that should be rejected. Yeah, yeah. I've never actually took the time to have a conversation with someone who's anti-Christian that when I took the time to hear them, that their objection had anything to do with Jesus. It always has to do with some Bible verse they found that they don't understand or some way a Christian presented it to them. And I wanna to talk to you about that because the last thing I'd want us to do is waste a once in a lifetime three-year opportunity. Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciple by your love what does that even mean? Which leads me to, in my opinion, the best book ever written on what it means to be a person of love. It was written by a guy named John to a group of believers. Nothing in 1 John is about getting saved or accepting Christ. He's talking to people who have already done that. Nothing in 1 John is about the afterlife. He's talking about what we look like here, and he's talking about what it looks like to be a person of love. And I'm going to read something from the middle of the book, which is inappropriate because you got to set up the context. So instead of setting up the context, I'm going to just summarize the whole book in 20 seconds, okay? You have to pay very close attention. Here's the entire book of 1 John in 20 to 25 seconds. Ready? Here we go. First John chapter 1, everything you saw in Jesus was true since before the foundation of the world. Jesus did not inaugurate a new reality about God. He just simply showed you what God was always like from the beginning because God was like Jesus, exactly like Jesus. God had always been like Jesus. We did not know that, but now we do. And when God starts forgiving the sins of the whole world through Jesus Christ, he doesn't just forgive the sins of a small group of people in one corner of the world. He forgives the sins of everybody everywhere with the hope that everybody everywhere will be so moved by that level of grace and compassion that they can't help but treat their whole world that way because you cannot say you love God and not love your fellow man. And anyone who says they love God and does not love their fellow man, they're a liar and the truth is not in them because the world is tired of people who say they love jesus but when you look at their life they don't love anything else thank you underwhelming at first but yes the whole book of first john in 25 seconds it's in that context that we read this if you just bring that first slide up there you go Uh, okay here we go for this is the message you heard from the beginning we should love one another Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. (laughs) uh, For we know that we've passed from death to life because we get all of our doctrines straight. Nope. (laughs) Because everybody knows where we stand on every social issue on earth. No. We know we've passed from death to life because we said a magic prayer so we could go to heaven when we died. (laughs) Uh Uh-uh. We know we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Look, it's Friday night and you're in church. Take a second and pause and think about that. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And anyone who hates a brother or sister, well, that person's a murderer. That person's a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Now let's talk about this. Let's talk about the implications of what this means to be a person of love in our world. Next slide. If you, I think this one is, uh, is not working. So next slide. When, we love, when you love, you're experiencing some version of eternal life now and conversely when you hate you're experiencing some version of death now the reason this is confusing and the reason i get more questions about first john than any other book in the whole bible other than the book of revelation is this for western people life and death are static images you you live you die and and it's they're literal like you're either alive or or you're dead Not, not to first century jews First century Jews used the words life and death to describe a dimension of living. Like there's a way of life that looks like real life. They called it eternal life. That's what life is all about. Life to the full, life to the vanishing point. But there's also a kind of life that looks like death. Like there's a way of living that actually looks like dying. Um, If you ever known known anybody that's in their mid fifties and they're still hooked on heroin or something, they're alive, but that life looks like death. See, for us, life and death are static images, not to John. And what what happened in the Western world is we're obsessed, overly obsessed with the afterlife, way overly obsessed with it, like seriously. Like if I died today and you came to my funeral on Wednesday and then I showed up here next Sunday, I would ruin your service, right? It it would go something like this. Oh my, Shane Willard's back. He has returned. Get that man a mic. Whatever we have on, it's now off. We're going to have a Q&A with someone who rose from the dead. What would the first question be? It wouldn't even be, are you okay? It, w- it wouldn't even be, are you thirsty? It would. You look a little dusty. It, it, would, it would be finally someone solve the mystery. What actually happens after you die? That would be the first question. Like if only there was someone who lived and died and rose again that could help us with that, right? So, so Jesus... Jesus dies and rises from the dead, comes back from the dead. How much does he talk about the afterlife? None. How much talk about heaven? None. Hell? None. I find that unbelievable. What I find more unbelievable is no one asked. Here's what you would expect. Oh, great, you're back. What was heaven like? What was hell like? We heard you preach there. How'd your altar call go? Did you clean out hell? You know, when you rose from the dead, tombs everywhere emptied. Where'd those people come from? All these things they could have asked him, not one person even asked. Jesus comes back from the dead and their response is, oh, great, you're back. Are we gonna take over Rome now? <laughs> is it now heaven is coming to the earth? See, see, next slide. For us, we obsess with life after death. For John, he's trying to answer the question how to have life before death, how to actually live here, now, today. The word he uses is metababakamen. It's a big, long word that, that means to change basis. Like if you're on the basis of death, and you want to know you've been moved to the basis of life, your first choice is to choose to be a person of love. I I have a master's degree in clinical psychology. I take mental health seriously, and if you're struggling with your mental health, please seek the services of a competent professional and not your cousin Earl on YouTube. That said, they tell me that depression amongst 16-year-olds is at an all-time high. I believe that, but I also find that unbelievable. Like if you're in your mid-60s and a 14-year-old tells you how hard their life is, Doesn't everything in you just roll your eyes? Like their world's way better than your world. Why? Because the world's better than it's ever been in every possible way. Like when I hear Christians go, oh, can you believe how bad this world is? Compared to when? When exactly exactly was better than now? Are you serious? Nothing. No way. If you're a woman, it's better today than 1950 and way better than 1850 and infinitely better than the Roman Empire. If you have color in your skin, it's better than 1950, better than 1850, and infinitely better than the Roman Empire. Everything's better. If you need to go to the dentist, it's better today than 1950 or 1850, and definitely better than the Roman Empire. Number one selling cough medicine in 1900, this is true, was liquid heroin. It was legal and effective. (laughs) It's like, oh, look, Billy's not coughing anymore. Come to think of it, Billy's not doing anything anymore. <laughs> Everything. Everything's better. Everything. Hey, go home tonight watch one episode of 1883 and ask yourself, would you want to live back then? Are you serious? Come on. Everything's better, except pollution. Pollution's worse, but that's because we invented the internal combustion engine and electricity, which solved a bigger problem like world hunger, okay? And, and to be fair and honest, we, divorces are higher. We're getting more divorces today than we ever have before, but that's just because we're living longer because medicine is so good right in jesus' day they died at thirty two so till death do us part was more doable now now you got to live with them to eighty four it's it's a whole thing right but the world's better so so but so why why are why are 14-year-olds depressed? According to Forbes magazine, the generation turning 19 today has more money in the bank than the previous four generations before it combined had at the age of 19. Like, that's unbelievable. And you know that's true. All you gotta do is talk to them. Hey, what's your plan? A 19-year-old today with a straight face will say, I'm thinking about taking a year off and walking around Europe to find myself. <laughs> if you, who's got that kind of money? <laughs> Evidently, they do. Hey, If you're over 40, could you imagine telling your dad that you were going to take a year off to find yourself? Oh, look, there you are. I have found you. Get a job. (laughs) Part of the reason they're so stressed, though, is a lack of love. Here's what I mean by this. I talked to a 16-year-old that would tell me they were depressed. Her and her mother came to see me, and I just asked her, what does your normal day look like? She was spending five hours a day looking at TikTok. Listen, you can't take the 24-hour gift of God's breath and spend five hours looking at nine-second videos of cats doing handstands and not be depressed. (laughs) The answer is to be a person of love. Now, again, what does that even mean? Next slide. Here's how John defines it. I'm gonna tell you what he said, what my interpretation is what he said, then I'll read his exact words and you can be the judge of whether... I got it or not. So John says one entry point into life is to truly commit to loving each other. Here's the example he uses. Central to Christianity. When I say Christianity, I mean seeing the world how Jesus saw the world, seeing God how Jesus saw God, and most importantly, applying Scripture the way Jesus applied Scripture. Christianity is not about getting every verse in the Bible right. Christianity is about getting how Jesus applied those Scriptures right. Okay, That started a movement called people of the way of Jesus. And then in the 300s, they changed it to Christianity because Christianity is easier to say than the people of the way of Jesus. Christian, central to Christianity is seeing all of life as a gift. If life, you, There's two ways to get something. They, it gets given to you or you earned it. And if you earned it, certain things belong. Like you could be a misogynist if you earned your life because you earned it and she didn't. You could be a racist if you earned it because you earned it and they didn't right but not if all of life's a gift if all of life's a gift then that fundamentally doesn't allow for racism it fundamentally doesn't allow for misogyny it doesn't allow you can't treat women worse than men blacks worse than whites you can't treat the poor worse than the rich because there's one god holding the whole thing together and he gifted life to everybody right and, and some big things are free like life it's free none of us deserve to be here none of us earned it none of us introduced our parents none of us gave them amorous feelings for each other None of us, and because of where I am, none of us deserve where we're born. We live in Australia, one of the top five greatest nations on the earth, a nation of motor cars, paved roads, stores that prepackage food for you, clean water in your tap, machines that do washing, other machines that do drying, world-class healthcare right down the road, and it's largely free or at least incredibly affordable. When I hear Australians complain about Australia, let me be blunt, where are you going to go? I've been around the world. Option B is worse. This is a great place. Hey, breath is free. Everybody take a deep breath. Yeah, yeah, free. And we all take it for granted. Don't feel bad, I do. Like, we just breathe. The only people in this room that don't take breath for granted are asthmatics. You got to carry your little puffer thing around. If you, could, if, if you could acutely lose your breath, you don't take it for granted. But all everybody else does, unless it's taken from you. The value of a gift often isn't known until it's threatened. Have you ever had your breath take it from you? It's called choking. I have. Only, it's only happened once. Only once in my life. I never want it to happen again. It, it was years ago. I'll, spell you, I'll spare you the details. I'll just say I was meeting someone for the first time, and I desperately wanted to make a good first impression. And I failed. It was a Thai restaurant in Chermside. We got the salt and pepper calamari entree. I bit it in half. It had a vein I didn't know about. And half of it went in my esophagus, the other half went in my windpipe. Totally cut my air off. I didn't know your body could make those noises. It was terrible. It was so embarrassing. But in that moment, everything I thought was important wasn't. Like the first impression, she didn't call back, and I didn't care. Next, I just wanted to breathe. Money's not important. I'd have wrote a check for everything I owned to breathe. And be very careful about saying things like, "I would never be okay with that." Never, never, never. I'd never. I don't care what they do. I'd never be okay with that. Careful. You don't know what you'd be okay with if you can't breathe. There's certain things I'd never be okay with, but that night I was okay with it. Like a Thai man I've never met putting his fingers in my mouth. I'm normally not okay with that, but that night I loved it. They shouted. He's chugging, and this little 4-foot-11-inch tie man, I assume he owned the place, come running out of the kitchen, put me in a reverse headlock, took his fingers, and shoved it down my mouth. And I loved it. I was like, oh, yeah, get you some of that. Like, like Normally not okay with that. but That night, I loved it. Breath's free. Forgiveness is free. Didn't cost us anything. Resurrection's free. And resurrection is not something that happened once that we believe in. Resurrection is a fundamental way of seeing the world. It says that death doesn't get the last word, that when something dies, it triggers new life. That's an important way to live. And it's happening everywhere all the time. Right now on you, it's on your skin. That skin's only 28 days old. And you know that to be true. That's why you don't panic in the winter when you wake up and there's dandruff on your pillowcase. No one panics, no one goes, oh no, I'm losing skin at an alarming rate. (laughs) At this rate, I'll be dead in 28 days. No, you just know death leads to new life. Well, those are pretty important things. Well, next slide, let's say it this way. If all of life's a gift, then certain things don't belong. Greed doesn't belong, not if it's a gift. Hoarding, murder doesn't belong. Why Why is murder bad? Well, murder says your gift of life is less valuable than mine. And by the way, if you think the world's worse, murder was not illegal in the Roman Empire if they were a lower class than you. Like this world is way better, way better. In the Roman Empire, full birth abortion was legal. Not just legal, it was encouraged. Not just encouraged, it was normal. When I say full birth abortion, I mean you had a healthy kid, you took them by the feet and you bashed their head. Or you left them on the rubbish dump. It was called exposure. It wasn't illegal till 337 AD because the Roman Caesar converted to Christianity and changed the law. It was the work of the spirit of Christ in this world that started making the world a better place because God did not come into the world to destroy it, but to save it. And he's doing a really good job. Complaining doesn't belong. Not if life's a gift. Imagine complaining about a gift. That's weird. If somebody gives you a gift and you complain, if someone complains about a gift, is, it, is the problem the gift giver or the gift receiver? It's always the gift receiver, which leads to this question, it's rhetorical. How many of us have complained to God about our life in the last 30 days? You imagine the complaint department out of Australia and there's nothing compelling. Think about the people who inspire you the most. Are they the ones complaining about what they don't have or are they the ones fully using what they do have? It's option B. Like, let me illustrate. Years ago, like years ago, I was a single adults pastor at a big church. I loved it. I we had a blast. My last Monday there, we, we were on Monday nights. My last Monday there we had 270 single adults coming out on a Monday night. I loved it. I loved it. Except for the fact that single adults are notorious for focusing on the one thing they don't have in life. Namely a spouse. So half my week was spent listening to this nonsense. Shane, I want to be married. I just want to be married. Shane, I don't want to be married. Shane, pray for me to be married. I just want to be married. Would you pray for me to be married? I just want to be married. I just want to be married. Shane, I not want to be married. Pray for me to be married. <laughs> no, you don't. Listen, follow my logic here. If you're not coping with the stress of being single... Less gold. Less gold. Yeah, yeah. You don't have a prayer on earth coping with the stress of being married. A single person's prayer tickles me. It goes something like this. Dear blonde-haired, blue-eyed, English-speaking, Jesus. (laughs) Shane here. I'm 27, I'm able-bodied, and I'm single. Let me tell you about my life, Lord. I get to do what I want to do when I want to do that. I don't have to run it by anybody to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Most importantly, Lord Jesus, no one on earth is spending my money other than me. (laughs) But despite all these things that I know sounds awesome, I'm still stressed. So would you bless me with one of your beloved daughters in order to make my life harder? (laughs) The problem was is that my other job at the church was I was the church psychotherapist. My my master's is in clinical psychology. And 90% of all church counseling is what kind of counseling? Marriage. So half of my week was Shane, we want to be married. We want to be married. We want to be married. The other half of my week was Shane, we want to be single. We want to be single. And no one wanted to bloom in the field they were planted in. The married people wanted to be single. The single people wanted to be married. I was like, I don't know what to do. I can hook y'all up. I don't know what to do. Look, if you're married, be the best married person in the room. What other hope do you have? Pray for a comet to come to earth to bring you sweet relief. Yeah. And if you're single, be the best single person in the room. The most attractive single adults are not the ones believing God for a spouse. They're the ones waking up every day saying yes to the infinite possibilities God has for their life here. Right? (laughs) If you're, uh, sometimes audience members dominate the room. And I love it. So, no, I'd be sorry. You're adding energy to the room. And I'm thinking about, you should just follow me around and get, get the whole crowd going. You're making me feel like Chris Rock up here. <laughs> if, I could, if I could just do a two minute aside here for the single adults, right? If you're single, I want you, and you married people, you better say a minute at the end of this because I'm right about this, right? But if you're single, right here, right? Um, n- number one, um, Number one, you don't need to find the one. That's just dumb. You need to become the one the one you're looking for is looking for. That's, that's number one. Number, no, number two, the most attractive single adults are not the ones believing God for a spouse. They're the ones using everything they have. That's number two. Number three, put your list away. <laughs> Nothing objectifies a human being like making a list about them, right? Imagine going on your fifth date, and you're like, you know what? Me and Jesus three years ago had a conversation about you, and we made a list, and you tick every single box, <laughs> right? Right? If you're going to make a list, make a list about what you bring to the table, not what they bring to the table. You can't say marriage is about mutual service and mutual love and mutual this and mutual that. But I just happen to have a list about everything you can do for me. That's ridiculous. And have you seen these lists? These people do not exist. There's a guy as a wall back. He's like, Pastor Shane, before you leave, pray for me. I'm believing God for a wife. I'm believing God for a wife. I made a list. Would you pray for my list? I said, let me see your list. You should have seen this woman. This woman does not exist. She was blonde for the sake of appropriateness, curvy. She was highly educated. She was successful. She had plenty of money. And she was emotionally low maintenance. All in one power packed package. I said, mate. That tells you where you lived, all right? <laughs> Yeah. King Aroy <laughs> I said mate this girl's a 10 he said, of course, she's a 10, Pastor Shane. When you believe God, you believe God for a 10. We serve the God of the possible. We serve the God of more than enough. When you believe God, you believe God for a 10. What's the problem with believing God for a 10? I said, the problem is, bro, <clears throat> you're a four. <laughs> like on your best day, you're a four. Girls like this don't marry people like you. Girls <laughs> like this marry brain surgeons. The last thing you need is for God to bring this woman in your life. She wouldn't give you the time of day. What you need to do is become a seven yourself. Lower your standards 30% and something might happen. Number four, never, ever, 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 ever ask someone to change while you're dating. (laughs) Dating is someone's sincerest attempt to impress you. If their sincerest attempt to impress you fails to impress you, leave. Here's what you do when you're dating. Pick the thing about them that annoys you the most. Multiply whatever that is by five. Add some occasional horrendous smells, and you got marriage. If you still love them, you probably found the one. And all the married people said, that's right. Moving on. Next slide. Here's the question John's asking. Since we receive what we don't deserve, we should treat others the same. Here's the question of love. Do we treat people as they are worth or as they deserve? If the anthropologist is right, people are gonna be flooding in here with all manner of broken stories. And you have a choice. You can treat them how they deserve and you can find a Bible verse to back you up. And you can weaponize scripture against people who have no emotional connection to scripture. And while we're at it, can we just all admit there's a Bible verse that disqualifies all of us? Right? If you're thinking not me, there's several in pride. And there's over 80 forbiddances of overeating. Mm -hmm -hmm. That's not love. Love is not pointing out what someone deserves because you found a verse. Love is choosing to treat them as they are worth instead of what they deserve. Remember they asked Jesus, what's love like? He said, love is like flowers and birds. You know, they do nothing to deserve it, but God feeds them and clothes them because they're worth it. Love is a function by which we treat people intentionally as they are worth and not as they deserve. I will pray that God keeps people from walking in any church that's gonna treat them how they deserve because of some Bible verse rather than affirming their worth and journeying with them. Jesus said, don't know you're my disciples by your love. How did Jesus define love? Treating people as they are worth instead of what they deserve. How are we doing with that? Now, that's my interpretation of what John says? Here's his exact words. Let's look at it. See how I do. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So we ought to lay down our lives for brothers and sisters. In other words, Jesus treated you as you were worth instead of how you deserve. Don't just believe that. Demons believe that. Just what's a Christian? Someone who believes in Jesus. No, demons believe in Jesus. Christians are people who fundamentally allow Jesus to shape the way they see their whole world. That's two different things. Jesus laid down his life for us. We ought to do that. And here's a specific example. If anyone has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but actions and truth. Christianity is not an argument to win. It's a life of love to show. Now that sentence doesn't read real well. If anyone has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can God be in that? It's a weird sentence. I see a need. I know I can meet the need and I do nothing. That's not the love of God. But that sentence doesn't read well. And don't feel bad. There's been rooms of Bible language experts who can't agree on how to translate that one sentence. Let me show you four different translations of that same sentence. Next slide. The NIV says, Have no pity on them. The NLT, Show no mercy to them. The ISV, Withhold compassion from them. The ASV, Shut up compassion toward them. Like it's all basic. I see a need. I know I can meet the need. No mercy, no pity, no compassion. But it should lead a reasonable person to ask this question. What does it actually say? In my personal opinion, in this one instance, the King James Version nails it. Here's the KJV. Shutteth up thou bowels on them. (laughs) I love that, eh? Isn't it amazing how the English language has changed? In the 1600s, it was a good thing to open your bowel on somebody. It was a metaphor for charity, being generous. Doesn't mean, you can see why the NIVs like have no pity on them. Um, it doesn't mean that now. But, but in this instance, the KJV does nail it word for word. The reason is, is because for us, metaphorically, the center of our being is our heart. So we say, I love you with all my heart. That song touched my heart. Did you see that movie? It moved my heart. You put your whole heart into that. That's, that broke my heart. That's the center of our being, not in the first century. The center of your being in the first century was your bowel because life grows here. Babies come out of here. It's this, it's life. The center of life was your bowel. So the, all the scriptures you love, like seek the Lord with all your heart, I promise you, you go look it up in the original language, it ain't heart, it's bow. Jesus loved them with his whole heart. Trust me, it's bow. right? It's that, it's, it's it's. The, it, let me illustrate. Like if you were dating someone in the first century and you said, sweetie, I just love you with all my heart. Well, that's creepy. You're gonna break up. The beating thing in your chest, that's weird. What you would say in the first century, you love somebody, you'd say, sweetie. <laughs> I just want you to know, I just love you with all my bow. <laughs> well, if you said that, she'd be like, oh, you move my bowels too. <laughs> Let me show it to you in the original language. Here it is. This is the original Greek. John wrote it in. Here it is. The original language says, ta Now, I can read Greek. It was my minor in university. I can read Greek. But you don't have to be able to read Greek to see that. say, close, ta, the, shplekna. You're shplekna. (laughs) Essentially, John's saying you you can't live life with a closed shplekna. The, The way to actually live life is to open your shplekna. No, no. to be fair, we would never say that. We would say, don't close your heart. Don't close your inner parts. But, but John said, no, 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 no. If you see a need and you know you can meet the need and you clay a se toshplachna, how could you ever think God is in that? Can you see why the KJV's like, don't shutteth up your bowel? They nail it. John's key to entering life, next slide, is to open your shplachna. To live life with a wide open shplakna instead of a closed one. What's love? Very simple. Once in a lifetime opportunity, people are going to come in here. You got two choices. Make the correct choice or I hope God doesn't bring anybody here. I hope God loves people enough to keep them away from unloving people. Loving people choose to treat people as they are worth despite what they might deserve and loving people when they see a need and know they can meet the need, they open their splatchnos all over that need. It's that. Now, great sermons aren't meant to be agreed with nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with for application. The best way to wrestle is with questions. So let's ask three questions. Next slide. Do you experience God yet leave the same? Maybe it's not God. And maybe it's not that you're a bad person, but there's a way that you can experience God with a closed shplakna instead of an open one. Or do you relate to someone who's hard to love? You know, the person you just wish God would go ahead and take them to heaven? (laughs) Maybe if we just opened our shplakna toward them instead of closing it. But the most obvious application for tonight is simply this. Is there a need that's well within your power to meet the need? I'm gonna lead us in two prayers I'm gonna tell you what the prayers are first and only if the Holy Spirit moves you, I want you to pray it underneath your breath because there's no vacancy in the Trinity for me. If God doesn't move you to pray, do not pray. It's not gonna help you anyway, okay? First prayer, Lord Jesus, may no one ever reject you because of how I'm presenting you. If you're willing to pray that underneath your breath, why don't we just pray that together? Lord Jesus, let no one ever reject you because of how I'm presenting you. The second prayer is this. Holy Spirit, would you speak to my heart about a need that's within my power to meet? Please don't burden me with things I can do nothing about. If you're willing to pray that, why don't you just pray that? Lord Jesus, would you speak to my heart about a need that I could meet? Then give me the courage to act. Would you look this way? The temptation of the church in the next season will not be sin and scandal. It will be using our energy on tangential things while ignoring the main thing right in front of us. May you never be known for your opinions about climate or sex or politics or doom or health or vaxes. May you be known for your belief in Jesus as evidenced by your love for your world. What does that mean? It means we intentionally wake up in the morning choosing to treat people as they are worth and never as they deserve. And when you see a need and know you can meet the need, open your shplackna all over that need. May this be a church of wide open shplackness. Thanks for having me tonight. Grace and peace, everybody. (laughs)